Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. The person that brought me the most knowledge on economics, bar none, is this person, Richard D. Wolf, economist, professor, Dr. Richard D. Wolf, was the person who first yanked me from the false belief that we had an economic system that actually works for everybody. So without further ado, I want to bring you El Dr. Richard D. Wolf. Senor Wolf, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Egberto, and thank you for such a rousing in- introduction. I hope I live up to this wonderful billing. Well, I don't think uh, anybody in my audience that have any kind of economic knowledge or economic, a little bit of know-how, they know who you are. But for those who don't know, let me explain. Dr. Richard D. Wolf is a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Armhurst, and a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New York New School, uh, the New School University in New York City. He is the founder of Democracy at Work and host of their national syndicated show, Economic Update, which Pacifica carries as well. His latest book, uh, well, one of his latest book is The Sickness in System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Uh, that's available everywhere. But please go visit his website at www.democracyatwork.info, where you get a lot of information. Correct whatever I need to be corrected on before we get started, doctor. Yeah, you've got it all right. Let's Let's get into the material that we need to talk about. Absolutely so, my friend. Absolutely so. Anyway, folks, um, look, right now I have been speaking about the Biden's economy doing much better than expected. In fact, I've been saying doing pretty well. Uh, Many expected it to go into recession. Many expected it to crash, etc. Well, it hasn't really in the aggregate done so. Before the show and speaking to Dr. Uh, Wolf here, I think he has a message not only for me to correct the narrative that I have been given, but I think he has a message for all of us that we need to take the task. So without further ado, what I'm going to say, Dr. Wolf, take it away. Okay, Egberto, thank you very, very much. And I'm going to build on the fine work that you do, talking about economics, teaching about it, honestly, in ways people can get to understand what's going on, something which the mainstream media is terribly, terribly poor at doing. So let me begin by saying there's no question in my mind that Mr. Biden is better for the economic situation in this country than Mr. Trump could have been or was. Uh, And there are many ways in which that is shown. 
That's clear to me. However, the statement that we are in good shape as an economic system, that I believe is incorrect. Uh, And let me give you a few ways to understand that. A new statistic that I became aware of this morning shows that we currently have over 12% of the American households that are called in the modern language food insecure. We all we used to call that going hungry, but that frightens people. So we cleaned up our act and we talk about food insecurity. This is the same week that the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, who, by the way, was a classmate of mine at Yale University years ago in the same program in economics, in which she said that we can afford two wars. I was flabbergasted by such a remark, the insensitivity of it to what war means. We cannot afford it, not as moral human beings, not as people who care about one another. We cannot afford two wars. But put that aside, let's simply ask the question. The government this week asked for 106 additional billion dollars to fight wars in the Ukraine and in the Middle East. At the same time that one out of eight families in this country is going hungry. That's not a good economic story at all. Let me give you another uh, example. The level of inequality in this country inequality in terms of the tiny number of people at the top who get enormous wealth and the mass of people uh, who don't, who don't get anywhere near adequate housing, clothing, food. That inequality is greater than it has been in decades. We have worsened the inequality. Even during the pandemic, we made it worse than it had been before, and that continues. That's not sign of a healthy economy, because before that even began, we had levels of inequality that violate any notion of a democratic society. We don't all start in the same place. We aren't on a level playing field. We are in a very unequal situation with people having very unequal chances to make a good life, to get a good job, to take care of their families, to realize their own potential. And the last way I would put it is the following. The American working class, the mass of our people, have been subjected over the last 30 years to a level of economic squashing them down that is making them act politically and in many other ways in frightening new ways. But it's not frightening if you understand what has happened. Number one, the growing inequality that makes all notions of fairness, of equal opportunity, fly right out the window. Number two, we had three economic crashes in the first 20 years of this century, the dot-com crash in 2000, the so-called Great Recession of 2008 and 9, and then the pandemic or COVID-19 crash in 2020-21, three times in which masses of workers counted in the tens of millions, 
lost their jobs, used up their savings, suffered the stresses and difficulties of unemployment. A spectacular burden to open a century with. And before that was even done, we were hit by a pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen for a century. And before that was done, we had an inflation among the worst in our modern history. And before that was done, we've had a shooting up of interest rates. It's too much. You have hit the American working class with one of these blows after another. And when you stack all of that up, then what Mr. Biden has done, however much better it might be or is than the Republicans, it really ends up being way too little and way too late. I think that is a perfect a perfect explanation of 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 it, and I, and I I think going forward, in effect, I, I think one of the reasons why I kept the narrative the way I kept the narrative is because of the, the how you started. Biden is better than Trump, but nowhere close to where we need to be economically. Right, and I think uh, I think we need to be much more bold. In, in, in making the statement that absolutely not, there's more to be done. You, and you mentioned uh, about inflation. Isn't it true that inflation is not really, technically speaking, a government thing, but simply the people with price and power that says, I can charge you whatever I want to charge you, and in the process, steal your money legally? Yeah, I, I am amazed, and, and I, I really want to congratulate you for your program in making it clear that inflation is not some mysterious business, it isn't so hard to understand, and it isn't the result of bad government behavior. And in order to make this point, let me be for a moment an economics professor, which is what I've done all my life. An inflation is simply when prices go up. They don't have to go up a lot. They don't all have to go up the same amount. It's just when, in general, prices are going up. And that's why we call the situation we're in right now an inflation. Prices are going up, and not just 1% or 2% a year, more than that. Well, it makes it really clear, as we all know, when we go to the supermarket or the department store, it's very obvious we're living in a time of inflation. Okay, now let's do real quickly. Number one, who is responsible for setting the prices in the store? Answer, the employers of this country. They're the ones who decide. If you make a toaster, what's the price you're going to attach to it? If you cook up a hamburger, what's the price you're going to? Look, there's no mystery here. 3% of the American people are employers. The other 97% are not. Prices are set by 3%, and the rest of us have to pay. There's no democracy here. We didn't vote for those 3%. We didn't choose them. We have no way of expressing our upset with them than to be other than unable to afford what it is we may need, our children may need, and all the rest of it. So if you want to know why there's an inflation, the only honest answer is that the employer class of this country, a very small minority, decided to raise prices. 
They could have decided to lower them. They could have decided to leave them as they are. But the power, the authority, the legal right to raise and lower a price is in the hands of employers. Next question. Why would employers raise prices? The answer <clears throat> is what every businessman or woman learns in business school. You raise prices if and when that can improve your profits. That's what business is in business to do. That's what General Motors, General Electric, General anything else is trying to figure out. If we raise prices, we may sell fewer goods. So then the question is, how much more do we gain by raising the price versus how many fewer sales we'll make? And they'll only raise the price if they can make a better profit doing so. So we've answered the question. Why do you have an inflation? Because businesses raise prices. And why do they do it? To make more money. So if you're not happy with an inflation, because it hurts you and your family, you can't afford what you had hoped to, whether it's an education for your child, whether it's the medical care you need for a, a sick relative or anything else, it's a small group of people whose search for profit has put you in this situation. That's the crucial thing to understand. That's why it's a mistake to blame the government. But there should be no mystery why people do that, because that's real easy. Businesses aren't stupid. The people who run businesses know that if they raise the price in order to make more profit, which is what they're in business to do, it's going to upset the people who have to pay the higher prices. So what have the business community learned? When you raise prices to get more profits, always be ready to blame somebody else. So here we go, folks, because you know as well as I do who the blame characters are. It is, I don't know, China and Russia. Let's try that one. That doesn't work. Supply chains have been disrupted. That's the funniest one in the world. <laughs> Supply we have the last 40 years, American companies have moved production to China and Brazil and India as far away as they can get. Why? Because it was profitable. One side effect, a long supply chain. Yes. And you know what you have? You, you have vulnerability. It can rain. There can be a war. There can be political, geopolitical problems. You have what's called a a purchasing manager, if you're a big company. You know what the job of the purchasing manager is? To anticipate supply chain disruptions and have a plan B and a plan C. If the, if the purchasing manager came to the CEO and said, hey, there's a terrible problem, I can't get the raw materials I want, the CEO would look at that character and say, you know why we pay you a salary? Because you have to be able to get that problem solved. Don't come to me and tell me there is a problem. That's why we hired you, because those problems crop up all the time. Here's another one you can blame. The war, I don't know, in Ukraine, or maybe Mr. Putin, if that's enjoyable. Anybody else, and here comes the most developed one, the government. 
<laughs> After all, we're all critical of Washington or we're all critical of our governors. We're all critical of those politicians. Let's load them up with another responsibility. You cause the inflation. You would flunk a class in economics if you talk like that, because they, the teacher, if he's any good, would explain to you, no, no, no. The worst you can say to the government is they didn't prevent the private sector from raising your prices. That's what they didn't do. They went exactly. along. They pumped. Now, here comes the one that fools a lot of people. Did the government pump in more money over recent years? Yes. And you know why? It's because if the businesses raise the prices, then unless the government pumps in more money, there won't be enough money to buy the higher priced goods. So what the government does is accommodate the inflation that begins with the private capitalist by pumping in the money that is needed to enable those goods to be sold. Don't be fooled. The reason you and many of the others like you and me believe that something other than the capitalist is raising the prices, that's because it's good for the capitalists. They want to be able to raise the price, earn more profit, and shift the blame for doing that onto somebody else. You're a sucker if you believe it. You've been had. It's like believing that if you use a particular kind of soap rather than another brand, your sex life will get much, much better. <laughs> you know that's a joke. You know, and we all laugh at it. Don't be fooled. Businesses raise prices. We have an inflation because it's profitable. And if it isn't profitable, they'll stop doing it. A reminder, for the first 20 years of this century, 2000 to 2020, the government in most of those years increased the supply of money, but we didn't have an inflation. There's no necessity at all for that link. That is a hustle designed to distract us from where the responsibility for inflation really lies. You know, interestingly, today on my KPFT show uh, on, on, uh, here in Houston, I pointed out that our capitalist structure is one of the most undemocratic forms of economic system because, again, anytime you start talking about supply side type economics, it means that the supplier decides what you are going to want and you hope for trickle down. If you start at the lower level, the people would vote with the income that they have, what it is that they want for suppliers, that 3% that you talk about to produce. It's so hard, Dr. Wolf, to get people to empower themselves. To, to, to accept that they're already empowered, actually, to really demand what these 3% want. One of the reasons I wanted you on is you speak a lot about that. The first time I saw you was on uh, when you came out with the thing, with, with, with the conference called Capitalism Hits the Fan. That, right. is the, that is where I got my economic acumen, if you will, when we realize the machinations that the corporate structure does to fool the American people and, and the Western people, if you want to take it to a global scale, into, into doing things against your own interests. Capitalism is supposed to be the efficient allocation of resources. Interestingly, I want to ask you a specific question. One of the most inefficient forms of providing uh, anything to Americans is our healthcare system. And it is based 
100% on some capitalist structure. How does that play? How can we continue to play that game? How can we continue to do this without eventually bankrupting the country? Well, let me answer by, by starting with a compliment that I believe you deserve. You're putting forward ideas, thoughts, inviting people who are not normally on the mainstream media so that the American people can get another perspective. I don't blame Americans because they live in a society that constantly feeds them silly, disrespectful ways of thinking about the world because they're afraid that if people understood, they'd be angry. And I think they're right. If people understood, they would be angry. That's part of the reason I just talked about the inflation. Understand who's doing that to you. At least then you can begin to think in an intelligent way, what can we do to make this situation better? But if you keep believing that the fault is in Mr. Putin or the fault is in Washington, you're not going to figure out how to solve the problem because you haven't yet been able to think through with the raw materials you need. And you provide those raw materials. And that's that's why I'm proud to be here. And now let me answer your question. We have to begin with facts that are indisputable. Number one, Americans spend more for everything having to do with health care than any other population of a developed industrial country. So we spend more. Roughly 18, 19% of our total economy is going into four industries, hospitals, doctors, drug and device makers, and health insurance companies, those four. Together, they are the healthcare, you might call them the mm, medical industrial complex, might be a name for them. Okay, we pay that we put more money in their hands than Germans put in their medical industrial complex, or the British do, or the Japanese do, and I could go on for many, many countries. Second fact, The economic, excuse me, the medical results, the quality of the healthcare in the United States is stunningly mediocre. We have a lower life expectancy than many other countries. You know, people in Cuba, just to pick an interesting example, live (laughs) several years longer than we do. That's a poor country. We are a rich country one of the richest in the world, and this enormous medical complex that we pour money into gave us a poorer result in the pandemic than many, many other countries who have fewer resources. In other words, it's not how much money we're putting in, it's how much benefit we're getting out of it, or rather, to be honest, not getting out of it. So what's going on? Well, the answer is obvious. Think with me, folks. If we get a mediocre result and we're paying more than anybody else, including all the people who get better results, you would understand something is really wrong here. And there is. And the answer is obvious because there's one thing you realize when you look at every major European country and many, many other countries in other parts of the world. 
who have a better record. They have better health results, and they spend less for them. You know what they have? A national health insurance program. They vary. They're not all the same. But they all say the following. I'm going to give you an example from my personal life. I was a visiting professor at the University of Paris in France. And when you do that and you work in another country like that, you have to go through, you know, procedures and get the right to be a a teacher because I was paid a salary and all Mm -hmm. of that. And that automatically put me on there, get ready, national health system. <laughs> so I got I got bronchitis, I got a couple of other little things, and I was introduced to their health system. I was given a little card when I started teaching. Whenever I had a medical problem, I took my card to a nearby clinic. They're all over the place. And I handed my card in, and on my card was everything about my my body, my health history, and all the rest of it. A doctor came out, took the card, stuck it in a computer. There was my whole history. I explained what was wrong. They did an investigation. They you know, did a diagnosis, sent me a couple of doors away to a lab where they took blood and all the rest of the stuff that they do. And I said, then, you know, where do I pay? He smiled. You don't pay. You don't pay. That's part of the way we run this country. And he said, explain to me, if you ever get sick, if you ever get injured, take the card. That's all you need. They'll put it in the machine. And that's it. I get paid a salary, he said. I'm a salaried employee of the government. I'm happy with my salary. I'd like a little more, but I know my job. I know that I can go home to my family at six o'clock and other doctors will be on duty. And mm-hmm. I couldn't get over it. There's no army of, of men and women that are clerks. There are no clerks. Mm-hmm. There's no army of people working for an insurance company you know, nickel and diming, whether they will cover this or not, whether they'll give you all of it or none of that. They don't need to waste tons of money on work that doesn't need to be done. Because if someone is sick or injured, what they need is a doctor or a nurse to take Mm -hmm. care of them. That is not worked out. And guess what? France spends half, half of what we do. Now the last little point but it's, it's secondary, but it's important. In our country, an employer, in addition to the wages paid to a worker, is often under pressure to provide medical care. But because medical care is so expensive, this means a huge extra cost for our employers mm-hmm. who have to compete with employers in other countries who don't have that expense because they have a much cheaper and much better functioning healthcare system. And in case you're wondering, yeah, French people live longer than Americans. <laughs> Their average stay in the hospital is shorter than Americans, and on and on and on. The irony is that the only beneficiary of the healthcare system we have is the monopoly operated by the hospital, doctors, medical, drug and device makers, and insurers who get together and work it all out. Look. That's what capitalism does. It drives the individual capitalist to grow. 
because otherwise you may be competed out of existence. And if you can cut a deal with others like yourself, you can become a monopoly and jack the price up even more. That's what the medical industry has done in this country. And if we continue to pretend otherwise, we're not going to solve the problem. Every other country like the United States has gone for a comprehensive national health care service, private, public, mixtures of them. That can all be done. We have 50 models to choose from how to do it here. We even have right next door in Canada mm. a single-payer health system. We have one in Mexico. On and on and on. There is no excuse. There never was. We are all drawn in to protecting a monopoly, even though the law in the United States, the Sherman Antitrust Act from 1890, the Clayton Act in 1914, that make monopolies illegal. We ought to break up the medical care one. It would be better for all Americans. I, I think it's important for me to repeat what I said earlier because you prove it over and over again. Capitalism, while it is sold as being the efficient allocation of resources, everything that is happening in America, that likely the most capitalist Western country in on the planet, proves that that is one of the biggest snow jobs, the biggest fallacies. Right. Would you concur on that? Absolutely. And, you know, let me... Let me bring a little history into it, because everybody kind of knows this, but they don't put it together. Every economic system that the world has ever known, the human race, whether it's a small village economy, whether it's an extended family tribal economy, whether it's a slave economic system, whether it's feudalism, has been born, usually out of the decay of another one. It develops over time. And then it passes away. Four and a half centuries ago, capitalism, modern capitalism was born. Over the last four centuries, it has developed. You all know where I'm going with this. <laughs> it has to pass too. The question isn't whether. The question is only when. And I have news for you. Even though I know this is difficult. And I'm an American. I was born in Youngstown, Ohio, which is American as you can get, lived and worked here all my life. The American empire is declining. There's no way out of that. The American capitalist system isn't the biggest, most powerful, most rapidly growing. It was for quite a while, for most of the years since the end of the Second World War. But it isn't anymore. One statistic, and then you'll see the point. There are now, as you all, I, I assume, know, there are now two great economic blocks in the world. Yes. One of them is the United States and its allies, usually referred to as the G7, the group of seven. The United States, Britain, France, Germany, and Italy – Canada, and Japan. That's it. Those seven. They together now, if you add up all the goods and services they all produce, the GDPs of all seven works out to about 29% of the total output of goods and services in the world today. 
The other block is China, People's Republic of China, and its allies. They are now known as the BRICS, BRICS. B-R-I-C-S, which stand for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And they recently added six more countries. So it's now China and its 10 allies. If you add up the total output of goods and services of the BRICS, it's 33% of the world's output. 33% in the China alliance, 29% in the United States. It's over. If you're honest, you will understand that the world has changed as it always has, that those who are on top aren't anymore. New group is coming. And the real question is, will we work out a live and let live arrangement so we can all share this planet? Or are we going to be really stupid and destroy everything because we can't work out an arrangement that accommodates the changes that are already the reality we live in. You know, uh, from the chat, Cat uh, Linden says, can you address the idea that we the people control what is made because we vote with our money or our feet? Uh, before you answer that, though, Dr. Um, Wolf, I, I want to mention that we, we, we sort of talked about that before, Cat, and if the, we have to assume that somehow the money gets to the people first. But Dr. Uh, will please address that. Yes, partly that is absolutely correct. We have some influence by the money we spend and where we spend it and how we spend it. But it's only a small part of the story. The decision, to, for, let me give you an example. Uh, you go to the store and you want to buy a breakfast cereal for your children, that they have a proper breakfast in the morning. So you can control whether or not you buy the cereal. But what goes into that cereal? The chemicals, the grains, the everything about that is shaped by somebody else, the company, the enterprise. And here's the real problem. For you as the buyer, for you and me, we only want to consume something that is nutritious and healthy for our family. What we would want, what we deserve, is that whoever produces is likewise interested in producing mm -hmm. something that is healthy and nutritious. In other words, meeting our demand. And I'm an economist. I've been teaching always supply and demand. The company supplies, the people demand. But here's the problem. You are interested in feeding and health and nutrition for your family. That's not the top priority for the enterprise. That's not how capitalism works. The top thing for the enterprise is how profitable it can be. How much money is it going to throw in to the process of producing that box of cereal? How profitable, how much profit can it get? That's its number one goal. If it's profitable, it will succeed, it will grow. It's, if it isn't, it'll disappear. 
And that means the incentive of the supplier is different from the incentive of the buyer. That's why we have so many agencies of the government, like the Food and Drug Administration, because what they put in the cereal, if you let them, is what's profitable, not what's nutritious. What's profitable, not what's healthy. What's profitable and will get your children to say, I want that brand. I want all of that. That's why this is a system that isn't working anymore. Because profit is not what we, the people, need. What we need are businesses whose first and foremost job is to meet the demands of the people. That's what democracy requires, and that's what logic requires. Putting the profit between us and what we need, that's good for them. That's not good for us. You know, Dr. Wolf, that is such an important concept. The cereal box, that's going to be added to my repertoire. That cereal okay. comparison is the best and one that somebody can understand. The, 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 the demand is for cereal that makes you healthy. But for what, that, what he believes that he wants to give you is what makes it more profitable for him. I, I, I love that one. You know, I wrote a, a book called, As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. And in there, I spoke about the food supply and patents. And I, I, we didn't talk about discussing this, but I want to hit you up on this one. Because I, as you know, right now, what a lot of the ADMs and other corporations are doing is they're putting switches on seeds. In other words, we're as now, as opposed to a farmer being able to hold on to his own seeds, he has to buy the seeds every planting cycle uh, because the seed is now not only copyrighted, but patented. And in so doing, we have corporations who ultimately control the food supply. What's your thoughts on that? For me, it's exactly what I just said about the about the cereals. They are doing, the seed companies, what's profitable for them to do. They hire economists like me and food scientists and a whole army of professionals to give them advice on how to make what they do more profitable. Can they force people to buy their seed? That's what they will do. Look, every company ever in capitalism has tried to grow because growth is how you survive. Well, you can't all grow because if they all grow and they all produce more, Mm -hmm. we don't have the capacity to buy. So in the process of growth, some of them are more efficient than others in growing for whatever reasons good luck, uh, clever management, could be a variety of things. And they are able, because they grew faster, to afford, for example, a new sexy machine that a smaller company cannot afford right now. And they get that, the, the one company gets the machine, is more efficient, lowers the price. We all buy that one because the price is lower and the other company goes out of business. Long story short, what competition means is that some companies win and others lose. And if you understand economics, the winners buy the losers. The winners hire the workers laid off by the losers. And that's how many become few. 
the auto industry in this country began with dozens and dozens of automobile companies, and then we were left yeah. with GM, Ford, and Chrysler, right? And we see that in every industry, almost everyone, many become few. And as they become fewer, they are bigger and more profitable, and now they can use their money in a way that a little competitive company couldn't. They can do a lot of advertising, making us believe that this toothpaste is really different from that one, that this automobile is very different from that one. We know most of it's nonsense, but we live in a society that bombards us with it all the time. This is good for them because if we think their product is better than others, we'll buy more of them. So the company with the biggest ad budget becomes successful. Mm. Does it make a better product? Of course not. There's no reason to assume that. Biz economics, they like to tell you that story because they keep wanting you to believe a simple make-believe. Here it goes. The make-believe works like this. What's profitable is profitable because it's the best thing. And I'm here to tell you, as a lifetime economist, <laughs> there's no connection between what's most profitable and what's the best thing for you. That's why we have every industry in America is regulated. The businesses hate that. The Republican Party wants no regulation because the businesses they rely on don't want it. But why do we have regulation? Because every one of those industries has been caught ripping us off. You know, for, for decades, we produce cigarettes in this company. We now know from the, all the trials that they knew it was addictive. They knew it was hooked up to lung cancer. But they did it anyway. Are they bad people? No. I don't hate them. They're doing what this system taught them to do. Exactly. It was profitable. It was profitable to make cigarettes. Look, recently, um, ExxonMobil was exposed for having known for a long time that fossil fuels are not good for the climate. It's not new for them, but that's their business. They're busy expanding now in order to, to make a cash off of what? High prices. High prices, why? Because of the war in Ukraine? No, but because they're raising the prices to take mm. advantage of it. Don't be, don't be fooled. What's profitable is profitable. I understand that. But to assume that what's profitable is automatically going to guarantee the best that we can get, that's being a patsy for the employer class. They want you to believe that their pursuit of profit is the best outcome you can have or we can have. And that's never been true. You know, it's interesting, uh, Dr. Wolf. We have a, a one of the uh, people in our chat room. We, we have a whole lot of different ideologies in our chat room that completely got snowed by Larry Summers, who said, well, if we pump all this money into the economy, it's going to create it, create inflation. He doesn't realize that what Larry Summers was doing was giving corporations the, the, the excuse to raise prices exactly. as opposed to uh, that. In other words, he was wrong on causation. Why don't you explain that to him? Because you you probably do a better job than I do. Yeah, he, he, 
he misunderstood the effect for the cause. It's a very old uh, problem. But he's not an innocent person. He knows very well what he's doing, uh, comes out of the same educational environment that I do. We all learned pretty much the same thing at the same books from, from the same professors. Once again, inflation, pumping money into the economy, was done throughout the first 20 years of this century, from 2000 to 2020. The government pumped in record amounts of money into the economy. We had no inflation. Everybody who didn't like this said, we're going to have one, we're going to have one. And you know, if you're a broken clock twice a day, you're exactly on the right time. But you're still a broken clock because you only got it twice and there's 24 hours in that day. And you were wrong <laughs> all but twice in two, two moments. Okay, what's the problem? The government is called upon by business when the economy is in trouble. That's your first clue. The business leaders love to tell you the government's not efficient, the government's the problem, the government, the government. You don't have to be a libertarian, although they go even further than most folks on this stuff. It's the government. And that for, when there's all these different businesses and they all agree that the government is the problem, your suspicion, your little red flag in the back of your head ought to go up. Something smells. So let me explain to you that you're right. Something does smell. These businesses need a scapegoat. They need a fog. You know how people are. If things are difficult for you, uh, you can be tempted to go blame somebody. And, you know, you have to learn to live with other people without doing that. That's easy for some of us, harder for others of us. The business community has no hesitation in blaming the government. Here's the irony. Whenever the business system falls apart, you know where all the business leaders go to get bailed out to the very government they denounce on Monday, they're begging on Friday. And they get it because they control that government. Remember in the, the great crash of 2008 and nine, all the business leaders uh, from Detroit, the car companies, they all got on their private jets and flew to Washington mm -hmm. to appear before Congress to explain why the people's money held by the government should be given to them in the tens of billions of dollars, which they got. We bail them out. Wow. If the government is such a mess and so inefficient, how come <laughs> you have to turn to it every time you make a mess of the economic system? Look at it now. We turn to the Federal Reserve. That's a governmental operation to raise interest rates to deal with what? The problem of inflation, because the business community has been raising prices to the point where it threatens the economy. Notice, the business community messed up, and the government is called in to fix it. You so know, then, to be told, then to be told that the government is the problem it's really outrageous. The government came in and pumped in money because otherwise there would have been no way to buy the higher priced goods. The government coming in was the effect, not the cause. The inflation was the cause, not the effect. You have to sort that out. Otherwise, it will be confusing for you for the rest of your life.
And it's interesting because even as the government uses uh, interest rates to try to mitigate inflation, to try to uh, create lower demand, supposedly to drop inflation, the reality is they on either side of the equation, they're asking the working class to pay the bill. They either pay the bill to the banker or they pay the bill to, to, to the higher prices to the corporations by buying the product. We pay the bill. We pay the bill. We're, we're down to our last five minutes or so, uh, Dr. Wolf. It's amazing because anytime you come here, you come for a 30-minute session, but we end up taking the entire program because you're so filled up with information. So for that, I think the the, the audience is uh, is happy for. I, I want to uh, jump on the subject of um, of our wars and where we're going. When I say wars, I'm even talking the Israeli-Palestinian issue, the Ukraine issue, and all these other things. Where do we go from here? The average American citizen doesn't seem like they feel they can do anything about it. What the hell are we doing? Well, I think, again, here, it's a lot of terrible misbehavior. I'm trying to be polite by the mainstream media Mm -hmm. in not giving it an honest range of opinion. Uh, That's what we need. We need to hear critical voices. We need to hear celebratory voices. We don't need to be spoon-fed by being given what some company or some government official thinks is the way we ought to believe. And Americans are usually pretty good about that, but they need to be, how shall I say, encouraged to be a bit more like their best self. And and here's the example. The Middle East. Israel is a new country, relatively speaking, only formed after World War II. And as you know, there has been wars and conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, Israel and their Arab neighbors, pretty much continually ever since. Yeah, sometimes it was a hot war. Sometimes it was a cold war. Sometimes it looked like maybe we could solve it, but we haven't. And the proof of it is the horrible things that have happened in the last two to three weeks. Horrible on both sides, as they have been horrible on both sides many times. But the reality is that you cannot escape is is that the efforts by the United States, by its allies over the years, by the United Nations, and so on, have not succeeded in resolving this dispute. Because what's going on now is, if anything, even more horrible than the last 75 years. I think that's honest, and we have to face it. If the United States meant it, when it said over the years that it was committed to peace in the Middle East, then that project has to be called what it is, a failure. It didn't work. Now, the United States is not alone responsible for that failure. The Palestinians have a share of the blame. The Israelis have a share of the blame, as does the United States, because we were the global power. We were the ones who had the resources. We were the ones with the global prestige. 
We took it on ourselves. We had meetings at Camp David, even though those countries are far away. We did that. No other country did that. We did it. And it didn't work. So something has to happen different from what happened before. Otherwise, we are doing something which is very strange, keeping up with the same stuff, even though we have learned over many years that it does not work. That's the first thing. And second thing, we are no longer the power we once were. We need other parts of the world, large, rich, powerful countries. And the number one is the People's Republic of China. Not because we agree with them, not because they are better than us, not at all, but because they are part of the world as it now exists, and they're a very big and very rich and very powerful part of the world, and we're not going to solve a global problem without them. And we have already failed to do it without them. So, clue, let's try it with them and bring them in. Number two, the one thing almost everyone can agree, really, is that killing large numbers of people is not an acceptable way to solve problems in the world. You know, if you really believe in an eye for an eye, then I want to remind you of what a very smart comedian once said. If you use the system of an eye for an eye, you make the whole world blind. It's not, <laughs> yes. effective, it's not an effective mechanism. Hamas killed innocent people. The Israelis killed innocent people. That has to stop. So if you want to know my own opinion, it's just mine. The first thing we need is a ceasefire. Stop it. Stop the bombing. Stop the attacks. Stop it. And now have the rest of the world say to the Hamas and the Palestinians on one side and Netanyahu and the Israelis on the other, stop this. And we will, we will have a conference. We know it's difficult. It may not go quickly, but we are not going to permit people killing each other on TV every night as a way to solve the problem. And to be very honest, as an American, I look at the world now and I say, there's a problem in Ukraine and my country is pumping military we weapons there. I don't think that's going to be a good solution to the problem. And I don't think it's going to be a good solution to give weapons either to Hamas or to the Israelis oh, now either because that fuels a fire we would rather put out. So I'm opposed to doing those things, and I'm a little bit unhappy that my government seems to think that throwing guns and killing is a way to solve problems. I don't think it'll work. I don't think it worked in Korea. I don't think it worked in Afghanistan. I don't think it worked in Iraq. I don't think it works. It produces worse problems than what we set out to solve. That's my view, but I think it's urgent that we get into the habit of finding other ways to solve our problems, or else we're going to have a really tough century. The 20th century had two world wars and didn't have nuclear weapons. Do we really want to go in the direction of wars? 
do we want a secretary of the treasury to to say in the face of all of this, hey, we can afford two wars at the same time? Dr. Wolf, I tell you what, I last last always give me a closer, whatever you want to say. I appreciate your inviting me. If people find any of this interesting, please visit our website, Democracy at Work, all one word, democracyatwork.info. I'm particularly pleased to be on your program because you and I share many, many, many things, and I have learned from you, and I see the effect you have on other people, including my own students in my classes, and I'm very grateful that you're doing the good work that you do. Dr. Wolf, thank you so kindly for having been a part of Politics Done Right. Uh, believe me, I have learned. I started with you with uh, Capitalism Hits the Fan. That brought me the beginning of learning the economic knowledge that I have today. So thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. My pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Right.